Good morning. Good morning. Last week we began to study the epistle of Jude, and we examined the first few verses, verses 1 to 7. Now Jude had intended to write to the churches initially concerning their common salvation. But before he began the letter, Jude felt compelled to urge the saints to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered. He could see the rapid rise of false teachers and false prophets infiltrating the churches. Peter had written about them in 2 Peter 2, but in Peter's epistle, Peter was warning the saints that these false teachers and prophets shall come and that they shall make merchandise of the saints in 2 Peter 2, 1-3. But here in Jude, these false teachers and prophets had already come. They were already popping up everywhere, and so Jude felt moved to write this epistle on the topic. In last week's sermon, there were four subheadings that we looked at. Number one was the delivery in verses one to two. Number two was the design in verse three. And number three was the declaration of apostates, verse four. And finally, number four, the destruction of the apostates in verses five to seven. Today, I would like to cover the rest of the epistle, Lord willing, so if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Jude, verses 8 to 25. We'll read from 8 to 25. Jude 8 to 25. <coughs> Likewise, also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts. In those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all 
and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's person, persons in admiration because of advantage. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And may God, the Holy Spirit, grant us the wisdom to understand the text before us this morning. In these uh, next few verses, Jude turns back to the apostates of the present day. Those about whom he was warning in verse 4. And here he now gives a description of their deeds more fully. Which brings us to our fifth point in our message entitled the description of the apostates. Verses 8 to 10 and 12 to 16. Again, we see group of three characteristics bunched up together here in verse 8. Likewise, continues Jude, that just like in the case of Israel in the wilderness, and like in the case of the angels in verse 6, and like in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, so too these false teachers are filthy dreamers who, number one, defile the flesh, Number two, despise dominion. And number three, speak evil of dignitaries. These ungodly men were like the unbelievers in the wilderness in denying Christ and scoffing at his promises. They were like the impure angels in leaving their proper constitution, their proper rank in heaven, and seeking the baser things and pleasures in earth. And they were like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah in seeking those base pleasures which were unnatural to men. These apostates defile the flesh through license and total liberty of deed. Nothing is to be forbidden to them, 
They despise dominion as they reject the lordship of Christ and the authority of his word, refusing to subject themselves to its mandates. And they speak evil of dignities or powers to be, whether this means earthly powers, all of which are ordained of God, or whether it means spiritual powers, all still are ordained of God and is no different than speaking evil of God himself. For if we believe all powers to be ordained of God, as we're told in Romans 13, 1, we must also be careful to speak evil of no man, we're told in Titus 3, verse 2. And then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude seems to insert a very interesting verse about Michael the archangel when disputing over the body of Moses. Now, Scripture is silent on this particular incident elsewhere. This is the only reference in the whole of the Bible where Michael is disputing with the devil over Moses' body. So we should not speculate as to its circumstances. However, everything in Scripture is there for our admonition. Consequently, we should learn as a warning to do no more than Michael did. Michael, being the only archangel mentioned in the Bible, is the very highest-ranking angel in all of God's spiritual hosts of heaven. To him have been given the greatest of all powers and privileges, and yet, say the scriptures, he durst not, that is, he dared not, he did not presume upon his exalted privilege or rank, to bring a railing accusation against who? The devil. But what did he say? The Lord rebuked thee. Why? Because he realized that the devil too was in his place doing what he was doing under the sovereign permission or permissive will of God himself. And to rail upon the devil would be to dishonor the Lord, because the Lord's servants, we're told, must act differently than the adversary's servants. But these, in verse 10, these false teachers, these apostates, these certain men who have crept in unawares, these whom the scriptures foretold of old would come, They speak evil of those things which they know not. But they say these things because they are natural beasts. They are sinful beings. And pride is man's worst quality. And so they presume to speak of these things, often with assumed authority. They corrupt themselves or bring to themselves harm and delusion. We are reminded by Scripture in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This now brings us to the next division in our message for this morning, 
point number six, the deception of apostates. Verse 11. Again, notice the triplet of ideas. Woe unto them for three reasons. Number one, they have gone the way of Cain. You remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain was angry at Abel because God rejected Cain's sacrifice, but God received Abel's. Hebrews 11.4 tells us, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. God rejected Cain's sacrifice because it was not according to faith. Cain's sacrifice was according to his own heart's promptings, according to his own self-will. It seemed lovely. He had worked hard to produce it, but it represented works, and it was not according to God's will. Abel's pointed to the blood, the blood of Calvary, Christ, the crucified one. So because of this rejection, Cain became angry and killed his brother Abel. Cain is the natural man. He represents the false religion of this world, the religion that is self-willed, that includes effort and works on behalf of of the worshiper. His religion rejects redemption by blood. We might go so far as to say that there are only two religions in this world. The true religion, faith in Christ of Calvary and his shed blood, and the false religion, faith in some other means. And so the first woe is that they, these apostates, they have gone the way of Cain. They have chosen another religion, another means of coming to God, bypassing Christ. The second woe comes to them because they ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. Now, what was Balaam's error? Balaam presupposed that he was entitled to make a profit from his religion. He was paid to curse Israel. He presumed that because there was evil in Israel, God must righteously curse that nation. He based this on his own natural morality. But he was blind to the higher morality of the cross, through which God maintains and enforces the authority and lawful sanctions of his law, so that he can be just and the justifier of a believing sinner. Now, Balaam's reward may in some cases be personal financial gain, or popularity, or applause. And in all human systems, however, religiously pious outwardly, where the word of truth is departed from. 
The same thing happens to teachers and preachers today. Smooth things are prophesied. Offensive truths are glossed over and scarcely touched, so that the purse strings of the ungodly might be loosened. How many so-called TV evangelists would still be functioning without that tremendous financial inpouring of wealth or personal popularity? I don't think too many would. And the third reason for the woe unto them is because they have perished in the gainsaying of Korah. The way of Cain was false religion. The heir of Balaam was false ministry. But the gainsaying of Korah was false worship and rebellion against God's authority. Remember how in Numbers 16.3, Korah confronted Moses and Aaron in front of the congregation of Israel and said, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord? Korah was a Levite. He was not a priest, nor was anyone else in his rebellious company. He had a specific service to perform concerning the tabernacle. But pride surfaced, and he rose up against Moses and Aaron, who represented a type of prophet, a prophet and priest, that is Christ, as the apostle and high priest of our profession. And Korah and company wished to bypass God's anointed one. They wished to force their way into God's presence as priests to worship him without God's divine title. And you remember what happened when the showdown finally took place. God gave his answer to all of Israel in Numbers 16, 32 to 33. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all his followers alive into the pit. And then the earth closed upon them. And oh, how many today, like Korah, try to reject the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make their way to God. They set themselves up just like Korah, falsely believing that they can enter into God's holy presence without the only mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. Jude speaks in verse 11 in the past tense. But this is a prophetic past. Just as in the days of old, so shall God's judgment surely rise against these apostates too. It is as though it had been settled. In the next few verses, we see a whole slew of triplets of ideas, metaphors that fit beautifully into uh, three categories again. The first category belongs with the way of Cain, verse 12. They are spots in your feasts of charity. They are clouds without water. They are trees without fruit. In other words, 
They cannot bear spiritual fruit. They have nothing to offer of a spiritual nature. They are natural men. They have not been born again of the Spirit. Verse 13. They are raging waves of the sea. They are wandering stars. That is, they cannot discern, for there is no light in them. So their deeds soon expose them. The second category belongs with the heir of Balaam. They are murmurers. They are complainers who speak swelling words, hoping to personally profit from it like Balaam did. And how many do we have today that are willing for personal gain to pervert the gospel of Christ? And the third category belongs to the gainsaying of Korah, verse 19. They separate themselves by their very nature. They are sensual, not having the spirit of Christ. Now Romans 8, 9 tells us, Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And so just like Korah, they separate themselves from the spiritual believers by their rebellion to the authority of God and his word and seek to enter into the priest's office without the chosen one. Now that Jude has clearly warned the church about these apostates, these false teachers, and their presence in the professing church, their characteristics, their works, and has reminded the people of God that God has judged them severely in the past, and will also do so in the future, verses 14 to 15, he then proceeds to tell the saints how to guard against the apostasy, which now brings us to the seventh point in our message, the defense against apostasy. You remember last week I told you that there was no remedy for apostasy. There's no remedy for apostasy, but there is a defense for apostasy. And I'll try and get through this one without putting all of you to sleep uh, in the next few moments. In verses 20 and 21, he again deals with a triplet of ideas as he admonishes the saints at large how to defend themselves against this growing apostasy and against apostate teachers. First of all, says Jude, as believers, we need to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. And how do we do that? Realizing that Christ is our foundation, that we are complete in him, we then need to feed daily spiritually on him and his word, so that our soul may be nourished and our spirit edified. For it is only through the revealed word of God that we can discover God's design for us, his will for us, and his wisdom. Through daily feeding of his word, we enter into a deeper understanding of his grace, his mercy, his love, 
and his holy righteousness and his truth. We are reminded by Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. Secondly, we as believers are admonished to pray in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the vital link in our faith. For it is through prayer that we commune with God. And as we yield ourselves to his will, as expressed in his word, then his Holy Spirit will direct our hearts and our souls to pray according to his will. Then when we ask, we shall receive, because it shall be according to his will. And as we bring to him every need and every difficulty, we can be assured that he awaits in grace to meet the need and to dissolve the difficulty. And when Christ is central and the soul and the heart delights in him, then the Holy Spirit brings to pass those petitions which God delights to grant. But then there is a third to complete the triplet of ideas. This one is a direct commandment. Keep yourselves in the love of God, verse 21. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. God is love. God's love is unmerited. Once in Christ, always in Christ. His love then is also unconditional. God cannot stop loving us, for we are told in Romans 8.35 that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what then does it mean, keep yourselves in the love of God? God's love is unchanging, but often at times we take ourselves <coughs> out of the enjoyment of that love. Sometimes circumstances and trials may cause us to doubt his love for us. Our own failures may lure us away from it, or personal unconfessed sins may dull the presence of his love. Our souls need to rely on God's love and therefore be carried triumphantly through the conflicts of this life. As to a little child who is spanked by a loving parent, that time of chastisement is softened because he knows his parents love him 
and therefore are correcting him. But should this child's awareness of their love for him be dulled, then the child becomes despondent and even defeated. Yes, we need to keep ourselves in the conscious enjoyment of God's love, realizing that circumstances cannot alter his love for his children in, in Christ Jesus, and that all things work to good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. If this be the case with believers, that is, if we be building up ourselves in the holy faith, if we be praying in the Holy Ghost, if we keep ourselves in the love of God, then we should deal in the following manner with souls who were led astray by the false teachers whom Jude warns. Some require our compassion, verse 22. When we contend for the faith with some, we are to use compassion to win them for Christ. We all know of those poor souls that have been driven into evil systems because of professing Christians, who drove them thus because of rigorous rules and legal application of the law. They feared to be contaminated with error themselves. I once knew of a certain family where the parents had so driven one of their children away from them that the child had been forced into rebellion. By discerning, some who have been misled need compassion and understanding as well as the truth of God to be one to Christ. Others, says Jude, save with fear, verse 23. Others need to be energetically warned. They must be warned of the fearful judgment of God before it is too late. Often there may be those who are involved in the occult, where evil is at its worst. Great care must be taken to not involve ourselves with evil in the process. Unholy teaching is defiling and is linked with unholy living. The believer must be careful that his life and his doctrine are both true and the same. In either case, it is discernment that is necessary when contending for the faith. And finally, we come to the last point in our message this morning, which I've entitled the doxology, the eighth and last point in our message, verses 24 to 25. What an encouragement to the saints of God these last few verses. Now, when all is said and done, it boils down to these last two points. Number one, God is able to keep you from falling. And number two, God is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. God is sovereign, and because he is sovereign, his power is limitless. He is able to do all that he has set out to do, 
And if he has promised to keep us from falling, then from falling he shall keep us, regardless of our circumstances. Listen to what Romans 8, 29 to 31 says. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What that is saying is this. Listen, Christian. God, who is sovereign and sees the end from the beginning, has already settled it. He has long ago, before the foundation of the world, decided that everyone who believes in Christ will be made just like Christ one day. Just like Christ in character, without sin, perfectly justified, and perfectly glorified with Christ, faultless, and no one will ever be able to point a finger at any believer for all eternity because we have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. And if you can't find a flaw in Christ, then you won't be able to find a flaw in those who have become his because they will be the exact replica of his character. That is why believers love his appearing. That is why we so earnestly expect the rapture, because after the rapture, we shall all be like him. Take comfort, says Jude, as he concludes this epistle. I want you to be aware of the apostates in the church. I want you to be prepared to earnestly contend for the faith. But I also want you to continually be building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, and to be keeping yourselves in the love of God as you await for him daily, remembering that our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is able. He is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless someday before his very presence. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Now, before I step down, as always, I must ask you all this solemn question. Are you saved? Have you, on the basis of Christ's work on Calvary, been saved? The Bible says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8-9 Have all of our sins, past, present, and future, been forgiven? By what Christ has done, or are we trying to atone for them somehow in some other way? Either we are in Christ this morning, saved and secure, or we are lost and perishing.
There is no middle ground. False teaching tells us that there are things we must do. Good works we must perform. Sacraments we must participate in in order to ensure our salvation. But the word of God teaches that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3, 10 and 12. And that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Oh, dear friends, do we understand what this means? The Bible is telling us that from the day we were born, we were born with a sin nature, and that no matter what we do, we cannot change that fact that we are sinners and that we sin, and that it is our sin that has separated us from God, and as such, we are helpless to do anything to save ourselves. But because of God's love, because of his mercy and grace, he sent his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to the cross of Calvary to take upon himself all of our sins and to be punished in our place. And by the shedding of his precious blood, the penalty for all our sins has been paid in full once and for all, never to be repeated. And because of his once and for all perfect sacrifice for sins, we have the complete forgiveness of sins if we place our faith and trust in him and him alone as our sin bearer. And so the issue that is most important to us this morning is salvation. Romans 1.16 tells us, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And the other question is, and if we are saved, are we displaying the fruit of salvation, or the fruits of salvation, which are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, great gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Galatians 5, 2, 1. And if perchance there is anyone here this morning, or those that will be listening by sermon audio, if perchance you're not sure, why not commit yourselves to him this morning for safekeeping? while there is still yet time. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank thee for this precious epistle written by Jude. We thank thee for the warnings therein. We see what he was warning. The churches in his time have come to pass in ours and are in an advanced stage. We realize, uh, Father, that there is nothing we can do about what has already been lost, what has been given up. 
But on the basis of thy word, we are told to hold fast to those things that we have been taught and that we continue to wait and look forward to the return of our blessed Savior and what we know as the rapture. But until then, we are to occupy until he comes. And so again, Father, we thank thee for the privilege of being able to gather here this morning to worship our Savior, to remember him at the Lord's table. And once again, we ask if he be not come, may it please thee to bring us together next Lord's Day once again. In his name we ask it. Amen.